Corbynism The Postmortem is kindly sponsored by the Media Masters Podcast, a series of one-to-one interviews with the very biggest media names, hosted by Paul Blanchard. You can tune in anytime at mediamasters.fm. And now, here's the show. This is obviously a very disappointing night for the Labour Party. I want to also make it clear that I will not lead the party in any future general election campaign. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take going forward. It's not, it's not Corbynism. There is no such thing as Corbynism. Founded out of the trade unionist movement at the turn of the 20th century, the Labour Party has always represented a broad church of the British left. Since overtaking the Liberal Party in the 1920s, Labour have dominated British parliamentary politics alongside the Conservative Party. However, electoral success has not always been easy to come by. Before Tony Blair became Labour leader in 1995, it had been more than 15 years since Labour had last been in government. To win power... Blair rebranded the party as New Labour, shifting it to the centre and away from its traditional socialist roots, making a break with Clause 4 of Labour's constitution, which called for the common ownership of industry. New Labour was a success, and Blair led the party to three successive general election victories. Until in 2010, under the leadership of former Chancellor Gordon Brown, they were finally beaten by a Tory Lib Dem coalition led by Conservative Party leader David Cameron. New Labour were out of ideas. And, following the deeply unpopular Iraq war and the financial crash of 2008, a new generation of young people who grew up in Blair's Britain were looking for a change of direction. Ed Miliband's leadership of the party was often criticised for not breaking decisively enough with New Labour and was unable to stop Cameron from winning an outright majority in 2015. Where Tony Blair had moved the party to the centre in 1995, 20 years later, Jeremy Corbyn would attempt to move the party decidedly to the left, encouraged by a wave of popular support from a generation of people who, perhaps understandably, considered themselves left behind by Blairism. Under Corbyn's stewardship, internal battles that had been won by Blair two decades ago over the direction of the party's relationship with common ownership, the European Union and foreign policy were now raging once again. But what did Jeremy Corbyn stand for? And what did his brand of socialism represent for the future of the party? Hello and welcome to Corbynism the Postmortem, with me, your host, Oz Katerji. Joining us on this week's episode to discuss Jeremy Corbyn, Corbynism and the ideology behind it all, we have a fantastic panel of guests. On this episode, we're joined by co-authors of the book Corbynism, A Critical Approach, left-wing academics Frederick Harry Pitts and Matt Bolton. Also joining our panel is one of Britain's foremost music journalists, Taylor Parks who wrote one of the most spookily prescient and damning pieces about Jeremy Corbyn's leadership campaign in 2015. Links to both the book and Taylor's article are included in the description of this podcast. And before we start the show, I would just like to take a moment to thank everyone that has listened so far. Corbynism The Postmortem is a 100% solo project, and it relies on the kindness and generosity of subscriptions. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to lend us your support please consider subscribing to my Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash ozkatergy. And now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the show, Taylor, Harry and Matt. Thanks for joining me today. Hello. Hello. 
So Taylor, can you tell me a bit about your work? Because some of our listeners might not be familiar with what you do. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm not a political journalist. I'm Mostly I write ludicrous pontificating articles about uh, pop music and popular culture and light comic pieces about sport. Uh, but I come from a tradition and a generation where, absurd as it is, um, it's, it was just assumed that if you had an opinion on rock and roll, you would have an opinion on politics that was somehow worth listening to. Um, and so in... Uh, 2015 I was invited to write an article about the Corbyn campaign uh, for a music, culture and politics website. So the article you wrote was for The Quietus and it's called Last House on the Left Following Jeremy Corbyn's Campaign Trail. Can you tell me a bit about the article itself and uh, what you thought along the campaign? Well, I've always been on the left and in fact, I've been waiting, like a lot of people, about 20 years for the Labour Party to move back to the left. This wasn't quite what I had in mind, though. Uh, you know, a return straight back to the days of, you know, Labour briefing and uh, the relics of the 1980s. Not hugely impressed by that. Uh, and also a little worried by what might happen if the Labour Party were to elect as leader a walking caricature of everything the British public hate, fear and mock about the left. Um, Now, a lot of people have praised this article for being uh, prescient, um, but I would say it did not take a latter-day Nostradamus to foresee that this might be a bit of a problem. So let me just read some uh, excerpts for people and I'll post a link on the uh, description uh, for people to follow. For years, Jeremy Corbyn was my local MP. I voted for him cheerfully. One of those beardy, tea-drinking lefties, just what you want at constituency level. I was dimly aware that he is said to... (laughs) I was dimly aware that he is said to hold some colourful opinions here and there on this and that. None had any bearing on the parliamentary representation of our slightly grubby London suburb. Things are different now. What was different? Just the fact that he was no longer the person you rang up when the fence of your council estate had blown over. Um, we, we were talking about Jerry Corbyn as Prime Minister. I mean, this, is, this was the most ludicrous idea imaginable, only a couple of years earlier. Um, and it, here it was, being presented, this could really happen. No, no, it, it couldn't, it couldn't. It wasn't, it was never going to happen. Um, and... The problem I had was that pointing that out uh, was seen as suggesting the left could never take power in Britain and that pointing to the the various demerits of Jeremy Corbyn himself was seen as uh, as being overly critical of the left because suddenly the left and Jeremy Corbyn became synonymous and the idea that there were various conflicting branches of left-wing thought was something which was virtually my entire experience of left-wing politics suddenly went out of the window and suddenly the everybody was uh, telling you that you had betrayed the revolution while lecturing you about unity so you predicted basically that Labour was going to have a disaster under Jeremy Corbyn they were going to be widely reviled by the public You predicted that Boris Johnson would have become the Conservative Party leader, and you predicted they would be having, you know, televised debates in a manner that suited Batman and the Penguin. Yeah, if you find that YouTube clip of the uh, TV debate where Batman is standing for, what is it, Mayor of Gotham City, and he has a TV debate with the Penguin, it's uncanny. So, 
Here, here's the thing, right? You didn't you didn't predict that Brexit was going to come along. No. Not many people did in 2015. So what was it about Jeremy Corbyn's kind of worldview that made you think, and I quote, uh, and they're the sense that this is all bloody petrifying, Jeremy Corbyn, are you fucking serious? Does it have to be him? Yeah. Well, first of all, I should say that... Uh, Despite being written off as some kind of uh, Blairite, because, of course, if you don't support Jeremy Corbyn, that's the only possible explanation, apparently. Um, I actually blame uh, Blairism for what happened, to some extent, because during those years, the centre-left of the party was hollowed out. So when, as inevitably happened, uh, the pendulum swung back to the left, there was just empty space for it to swing through. Um, until finally you reach these these old people, these these, these 1980s people on the, the far left of the party who'd just been left in place because they were, in many cases, popular constituency MPs and because the assumption was they would just stay there for a little bit and then die and then you could put another progress android in their place. Um, but no, there they were. That was the first thing the pendulum hit. That was what we had to take. Um, no, this is a terrible idea. This is a terrible idea. Because even before I started scratching around and, and reading up, I already knew that Jeremy Corbyn had far too much baggage to ever dream of running for prime minister. Um, then, of course, what you find when you start digging is just more and more and more of it. Um, and I'm not the sort of person who can afford to throw away an election for some babyish fantasy of, you know, the next best thing to revolution, you know, some downgraded fudge. Um, I can't do it. I'm getting old. I'm extremely poor and in an extremely precarious position. Um, I need to think pragmatically about politics. The trouble is, where I come from, as I was saying, these, uh, there's a sort of intersection of cultural and political writing where people uh, who write about music or who write about art um, also write about politics. And they write about politics the way they write about art and music. So you're encouraged to be very bold because that's what an art critic is meant to do. You're meant to uh, break up lazy thinking and tease the imagination. Um, and it's all just throwing wild ideas around to try and try and make things more exciting. Um, and you can do that with politics when you're writing sort of slim paperbacks published by your mates. You know, that's, that's fine. But when you're talking about real politics that's actually going to happen um, and there are uncomfortable truths two inches from the end of your nose, um, as soon as you face up to that, these people throw their hands up in horror. Um, you have betrayed the revolution. You are now, It's as if the only thing you could possibly be saying is, come on, grow up, vote Conservative. So, Harry, you wrote this book, Corbynism, A Critical Approach, with Matt. Can you talk to me a bit about the book and what you think Corbynism is, ideologically? Yeah, I mean, whereas a lot of the... There's a, quite a few books now out there on Corbyn that have tended to trace his personal trajectory or the movement of uh behind him and its kind of ascendancy to to power in the labor party we undertook a slightly more academic um objective 
of kind of trying to reconstruct what Corbynism is. Because the way it's discussed, or has been discussed in the media, for instance, has tended to characterise it as you know, a bunch of Marxists or Trotskyist entryists, um, which simplify things drastically, whilst also seeing it as a kind of a black swan event. Comes out, suddenly it comes out of nowhere without any precedent whatsoever, and it's a totally new thing. Um, so we were trying to uh, situate that in what we're interested in academically, which is uh, Marxist thought and the, the, the history of the development of Marxism and, and, the, way, and the way it's understood um, a capitalist society. And essentially, Corbynism brings together an unsteady coalition of several sometimes competing and contradictory elements from the history of 20th and 21st century um, Marxism and you know, the radical left more broadly. So you've got that kind of new left, um, Leninist, kind of third worldist kind of um, uh, uh, body of, of thought that Corbyn to some extent comes out of some of the people that are close to him who are often characterised as, as, as Stalinists might be um, said to come out of that. So broadly a kind of orthodox Marxist kind of um, perspective that is indebted to um, state, you know, various forms of state socialism, even communism in the 20th century. Then you've got, you know, a kind of more contemporary, uh, what you might associate with kind of post-capitalist, a lot of those kind of post-work ideas that come from people like Paul Mason, um, which is, uh, you know, again, could also be called autonomist in that they, they do see class struggle as, as, as driving um, uh, the development of, of capitalist society. And, you know, that's a much more, has a much more kind of libertarian approach to, to socialism, perhaps, than some of those other strands. And then you've got various different other components, some that are very localist in orientation, so stuff around that Preston model, um, some that are more nationalist, the kind of left nationalist approach, which plays out in that Lexiteer type of perspective. Um, and then you've also got kind of internationalist leftists who, who believe in things like open borders and you know, who are probably closer on a lot of things to, to where we would be um, within Corbynism as well. And then finally, you've got within Momentum, a kind of, I think, ended up being a bit of a crucible for uh, some competition between the, the more state-oriented forms of that and then something that was a, probably a bit more positive it's more about grassroots politics of social reproduction on the ground um, that's an unsteady coalition a lot of contradictions in there between the nation and open borders but Corbyn was able to hold it together and in the book we kind of go into how that came to be so Matt how how did that come to be how can Corbynism be you know pro-borders anti-borders how can it be tough on crime, soft on criminals? How can it be, you know, authoritarian and libertarian? How could Corbynism be all of those things? Well, I think one of the things that we draw out in the book is precisely that question. What, how was this possible? Um, and what distinguishes Corbynism from socialism, right? Because Corbynism, Corbyn himself has recently said, there's no such thing as Corbynism, it's just socialism. Um, and to, a, to an extent, that's true, right? A lot of these ideas existed before Corbyn, he didn't invent them. Um, there's, a, there's a history of these ideas um, and uh, the way they've been kind of developed across the left, across, you know, for a long time. But what made, what made this particular thing possible and why we, why we think it's right to call it 
why Corbynism, there's something specific about Corbynism, is the figure of Corbyn himself and the role that the figure of Corbyn himself or perhaps um, the, the kind of persona that's attributed to Jeremy Corbyn, um, his particular characteristics, slightly self-effacing, slightly sham- shambling, um, genial, kind of, you know, the whole, it's a cliche now, but the magic grandpa kind of thing. Um, there was something about the way that he was and is in particular that was absolutely fundamental because it allowed all of the different factions of the left to kind of project their own desires and their own kind of ideologies on him. And even if there might have been points where he would do or say things which they might disagree with, they would say, well, you know, Jeremy, we know we'll do the right thing in the end. And this idea of of Corbyn being um, perpetually on the right side of history that he's always been, in every decision, in every period of his political career, he's always picked the right side, he's always made the right decision. Um, he's, he's a kind of morally exceptional figure. Um, was absolutely fundamental because he kind of represented how a lot of these people in the movement thought about themselves. Now, I, I found frustration with the idea that Corbyn is always on the right side of history because it, it sort of requires a bit of you know, revisionism of, of the things that he's actually said. He supported a, an article written by John Pilger, which claimed that there'd been no mass graves in Kosovo uh, in 2004 in an early uh, day motion. Now, that can't surely be perceived to have been on the right side of history. And when when presented with that information, I found that Corbyn's biggest supporters um, often didn't know what to do or, or how to reconcile him being on the wrong side of history. So it wasn't something that was ever really debated by them. Kosovo was never really spoken about by by people. I think the problem with that is that for a lot of the left who support Corbyn or come from the kind of um, background that Corbyn does, the Stop the War Coalition left or whatever, they do think that they were on the right side of history in opposing the NATO intervention in Kosovo, right? They do think they were on the right side of history in supporting the arms embargo that stopped the um, Bosnian Muslims from defending themselves. Um, they do think they were on the right side of the history when Tony Benn, for example, speculated that uh, the Bosnian Muslims were bombing themselves uh, when there was a bomb in, in the marketplace in, in Sarajevo. Um, so I think... The problem is, is that it, it doesn't quite work in the sense of you, you confront people and say, well, how can you be on the right side of history here? Because they, they think that those wars were essentially aggressive wars uh, conducted by the US, by NATO, in order to kind of destroy socialism that was, that was represented by Milosevic. And that's the problem. I think a lot of this comes down, a lot of this originates. And what we go into with the book are, are different conceptions, different ways that you can conceptualise capitalism. Um, and we argue that Corbyn and a lot of his supporters, not all of them, but a lot of his supporters have a very moralistic understanding of what capital, capitalism is, what socialism is, how you can make the transition from cap- what the problem with capitalism is. And for Corbyn, the problem of, of, for capitalism is essentially that people aren't nice enough. If only people were as nice and caring as him, perhaps things would be different. And we think that's a very inadequate understanding of what, what capitalism is and how it works. Um, I'll bring you back to the you know the, the moralism thing. I mean, another major thing that's happened in recent years is, is obviously Syria. Now, I think we'll, we'll go into that into more detail slightly later on. But I just wanted to bring up the point that you know Jeremy Corbyn invited an Assad regime, a pro regime nun uh, called Mother Agnes, uh, to stop the war coalition uh, event, and he invited her to Parliament. <clears throat> 
And at Parliament, you know, she was he gave her a platform to deny that the Assad regime was using chemical weapons and so on and so forth. And, you know, again, a lot of Corbyn supporters, I wouldn't even say the majority, a lot, a lot of them would, would condemn this. You know, Owen Jones boycotted the Stop the War Coalition event when that happened, when she was invited. Eventually, she withdrew her... Her, she withdrew her appearance and, and then, you know, months later, Owen Jones would be campaigning for the person who invited her onto that platform in the first place to become prime minister. So, you know, the Corbyn movement, as you said, is full of, you know, things that, that don't necessarily make sense with it, contradictory positions. So, you know, again, how would you confront the idea that he's always on the right side of history when he goes and does these things that seem so completely wrong you know and his you know some of his loudest supporters who weren't of the as you say very far left you know anti-nato constantly everything how did they how do you think they reconciled it and how do you think they justified and defended corbynism's worldview as it were a defensiveness set in very early on which meant that the possibility of being able to be critical and and self-reflective about this kind of thing on the part of the left was was vastly diminished but there's a I mean, when Matt mentions that we're, we, in the book, we look at different competing versions of what capitalism is, how it works, how does, how you know, how are, uh, how do people and and the world around them relate under under capitalism? What we're really talking about is, like you say, a worldview that tends to see divides and contradictions instead of running through people or through societies or through the people or, or however you want to see it sees those divides as between externally related forces and blocks. And, I mean, in a way, left pop, the rise of populism, left populism and right populism, created a favourable environment for, for Corbyn to be able to hold this unsteady synthesis together. But there's a set of recurring themes in all those different pockets of the left we mentioned that tend to see these, these things as externally related divided principles in society so capitalism for instance is not seen as something that grows out of society but is seen as something that's imposed upon a society that like matt said if everyone was just nice to one another there'd be a natural kind of socialism neoliberalism is cooked up in some mountain retreat by a bunch of economists and then forced upon an otherwise um, good and productive society the global economy is a is is somehow um something that can be defended against through the nation state, for instance. So it's something outside um, and that, that is imposing itself on the inside. Um, you know, this, this recurs constantly around ideas about technological development being, um, you know, kind of pegged back by uh, the social relations um, of capitalist society or finance being something that kind of comes in from outside on, the, on, on production, on the otherwise productive uh, national community. But it, come, it comes out a lot in, in foreign policy, where, which is Corbyn's ultimately his chosen subject, where he sets a lot of store and the people who believed in him you know, saw him as on the right side of history, generally around foreign policy issues rather than domestic policy. Um, but it's a common form that the domestic policy and the foreign policy take, which is by seeing these, these blocks opposed to one another. So you know, the, the foreign policy ends up reducing to kind of good countries and bad countries, so with an issue like Syria, the demand to don't bomb Syria recurs both with the 2013 vote about uh, uh, airstrikes against Assad's Air Force, then it also recurs then 
with the discussions in, in 2015 about bombing ISIS, and it, the same demand, don't bomb Syria, comes up again uh, with the action taken by the US, France and the UK against Assad's uh, Air Force a couple of years ago. That kind of just treats it as a block. doesn't matter what's happening inside the country, doesn't matter the divisions that are happening within Syria and, and, and the contested nature of the regime, it's just Syria. And, that, and, and that's what we need to defend. So, so you can see this kind of, it's moralistic, it's, it, it divides the world into good and bad principles without really appreciating the actual complexity of society as it is. And of course, if you place yourself on the side of the good, you aren't going to want to hear too much about uh, what's bad about that. You are listening to Corbynism, the Postmortem, and this episode was kindly sponsored by the team over at Media Masters Podcast, who produce fascinating one-to-one interviews with some of the very biggest names in media. You can find them at mediamasters.fm. And now, back to the show. What I found quite uh, depressing and a little bit frightening from arguing with especially quite mild and moderate Corbynites who don't really subscribe to the full Stop the War insane worldview um, is that their response to uh, specifics like we've been discussing is to just deny it always to deny it um, as a smear Uh, you say Jeremy Corbyn supported terrorists well no he never strapped on an AK-47 he's not that kind of guy but if you are a politician words of praise for not the causes but the organised murderers themselves is support Um, why do you think, if not for Jeremy Corbyn being leader of the Labour Party, why do we now have the Shadow Foreign Secretary standing up in the Commons and parroting uh, Putinite acidist lies about Syria? Why is this official Labour Party foreign policy? Because of Jeremy Corbyn. You say this to people, they don't believe it. I say to them, everybody, even vaguely involved with the left in this country, knew what Jeremy Corbyn thought, or had at least a basic idea of what Jeremy Corbyn thought, for years. Um, it, it wasn't a secret. Uh, I mean, he was mo- proud of it, wasn't he? Yes, yeah, most of this stuff he said through a megaphone to hundreds of people in Trafalgar Square, which is pretty much the opposite of a secret. A lot of it's still viewable on YouTube. Um, you throw this at people, they're just, well, no, no, Jeremy would never say that. Well, here's the video of him saying it. Next comment, no, 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 Jeremy would never say that. And he didn't and, mean that, you and, know. Yeah, and if you really get down to it with them, um, what you get is not a discussion, you get an inquisition. Because what's so frightening is, what this has revealed to me, is a kind of longing for totalitarianism, just under the surface of so many basically nice people. They don't want certainties to be questioned. They don't want there to be a lively exchange of views or a competition of ideologies. They say, no, no, this is how it is. Don't spoil it. Don't spoil it. So the number of arguments I've had to people where we're talking about, for instance, Labour's economic plan, which, lest we forget the very first thing that Corbyn and MacDonald did, and the smartest thing they ever did, was to get in the world's top left-wing economists, sit down, try to thrash out a 21st century left-wing economic plan. All those economists ended up walking away because the general consensus seems to be that Corbyn wasn't interested and MacDonald didn't really know what he was doing. Didn't fill me with hope for the future, you know. It's like if, um, you know, if Keynes on the eve of his trip to the States had said, no, I've called Clem three times this week. He hasn't got back to me. He's a washout. I'm not going. Where would we be? But if you suggested to people that maybe 
giving these people control of Britain, control of the British economy, control of British foreign policy might not be a good idea. You never got a discussion about that. What you got is people would say to you, so you don't want socialism, so you love austerity, right? Which is like, if you're being wheeled into an operating theatre, there's a chimp standing there with garden shears, and you wait a bit, no, and the nurse pushes you, what, you don't want your gastric bypass? You love the pain you're in? No, it, and it's, it's horrible. It's horrible to see that happening, especially to, when it's people you like and people you, you, know, you don't really want to argue with. But just under the surface, it's uh, yeah, the inquisition as to your motives in questioning Jeremy Corbyn. Taylor, you said in, in your article, the ceiling's caved in on New Labour. Bits of plaster have been coming down since well before the last election, but everything collapsed when Harriet Harman, interim leader, tried to get around the trap the Tories had set with the welfare bill. A trap as clear as fear, and plumped for what she seemed to think was a clever compromise, abstention en masse. So, you know, you were there right in the thick of it, and, and Harriet Harman made this decision to abstain, which we've, we've, which we've spoken about on the show before. I was there claiming welfare, in fact. I was not impressed. So, you know... Even though it was only a second reading, something which has been completely ignored by the entire Corbyn narrative, but never mind. I mean, so, look, you must have been happy that the party was moving in an anti-austerity direction. Yeah. However, you saw the warning signs that the people getting involved with the party weren't taking it in the way you wanted it to go. Yeah, although, I mean, Corbyn's anti-austerity stance is somewhat overstated when you look at their actual practical proposals for what they were going to do with uh, trying to roll back the last 10 years of uh, benefit cuts. And uh, they were not quite as strong on that as a lot of people seem to assume they would be, or who hadn't actually read the manifesto seem to assume that they were. Um, But yeah, of course, the point is that was always going to happen. Because austerity is not something that can continue without end. Uh, because sooner or later, people's house starts to fall down. You know, people's high street is a, is a wasteland. People, people go to the doctor. They can't get an appointment for three months. Um, and then people start to complain. This is, austerity is was only ever... Well, I mean, it was proposed as a temporary measure and then looked a lot less temporary after a while. But... Of course, sooner or later, people were going to demand an anti-austerity alternative. There was just no particular reason why that had to come with uh, support for the, the, the Kremlin line on the Skripal poisoning. I mean, the idea that either you can't have one without the other or that one is worth taking if you get the other just strikes me as farcical. What do you think Corbynism got right? I think it got the obvious stuff right. It got the it got the fact that that that, uh, that Labour as a as a as a proudly centrist party was now a busted flush. I think that was absolutely correct. Um, beyond that, it's hard to say because perhaps in order to hold together this kind of loose coalition that we were talking about earlier, uh, there was an awful lot of vagueness. Was a, a, a lot of stuff was very vague when you look closely. Um, in the same way that the manifestos were just sort of a sprinkling of promises, which nobody really believed were all going to be implemented, um, there was a kind of vagueness as to what this was all about as well. It was more about defining yourself against an enemy 
than it was, uh, whether that was a right-wing enemy or an enemy within the Labour Party, uh, than it was about proposing anything concrete. So obviously Harriet Harman's uh, abstention on the welfare bill is often credited with kind of being that moment that lots of, you know, even moderate Labour supporters were, were, you know, reached the end of their tether with the way that Labour was running and being run and they wanted a change. So they, the idea of, you know, this anti-austerity, you know, traditional left-wing kind of um, socialist ideas, they really started to resonate with people in 2015. In 2017, you know, Jeremy Corbyn almost, almost made it to Downing Street. Can you talk me through some of those, you know, moments and, and what you think uh, was the driving force behind it all? Yeah, so the, the, the standard argument um, the explanation for the success in 2017, and I think we're forgetting that the 2017 election was remarkably successful for Labour. They were they were very close to winning the election, which none of us had predicted. You know, we certainly hadn't. And part of our book is trying to think about how, why did that happen? Where did that success come from? Um, and one of the ways we thought about it was actually tracing the development of what we call kind of the austerity narrative or austerity populism, as we call it, and the relationship between austerity, the way that austerity was sold, Brexit, um, and the notion of the deficit, and then what happens after Brexit, and how Brexit in some ways kind of clears the path for Corbyn to come in with a kind of big spending manifesto in a way that just wasn't open for Ed Miliband. So if you remember 2015, Ed Miliband had moved slightly left, um, he'd come up with a, a kind of moderately uh, leftist uh, manifesto, but it was all predicated on the fact that there'd be no more debt because everything, it doesn't matter what he said, it was the deficit. You've got to get the deficit down. You've got to get the deficit down because you have the 2008 crash, Cameron Osborne and Clegg come into power. We're clearing up Labour's mess. Uh, the argument is that um, the hardworking families of, of the nation have um, somehow been uh, betrayed by the scroungers. The scroungers have been kind of sucking off the productivity of the nation and because of that we've had the financial crash and uh, austerity is the kind of rational response to that. We have to cut back. We have to cut back because of the uh, overspending of Labour uh, who have spent too much money on the scroungers, on the people who are getting benefits, on the disabled um, immigrants uh, or the rest of it. Um, and then so you have the 2015 election and at the, begin at the beginning of Miliband's kind of era uh, Ed Balls as an attempt to try and counter some of the austerity, the austerity narrative, right? Ed Balls did a famous Bloomberg speech, I think, when he said, "No, we need we need to invest. We need a Keynesian kind of counter cyclical uh, response." Um, but the, there was a moral urgency to uh, the austerity narrative of uh, Cameron and Osborne, um, this idea of we're all in it together, and they were very clever. They framed it. But through this opposition of the hard-working family and the person on benefits. And Osborne did a speech in 2012, Tory conference, when he says, you know, we're on the side of the hard worker who wakes up and, you know, alarm clock written and goes to work and he looks up and he sees the closed curtains of his neighbour sleeping off a life on benefits. And we say, we're on the side of that worker and we're going to go through austerity, get rid of the scroungers, we're going to make the sacrifices necessary and we're going to have this kind of uh, national renewal um, at the end of it, and a new nation of, for the hard-working families, right? And then so Miliband 
initially tried to challenge it and it just wasn't working because this, the, the moral urgency of the deficit and we're all in it together and this appeal to kind of World War II imagery, keep calm and carry on, uh, make do and mend, this kind of necessity, we're going to make this belt tightening and live within our means, um, was incredibly powerful. And in 2015, um, Miliband tried the, the manifesto, the first line of the manifesto was we're not going to do a penny of extra borrowing for any of our um, policies and it didn't work, they lost. And I was looking at... Um, John Crudus did a report about the 2015 election, which was very controversial at the time, and he, he argued that actually Labour lost that election not because they were uh, not anti-austerity enough, but because they were still seen as being too anti-austerity. They weren't, they weren't um, willing to cut back spending enough, and that was a very controversial argument. And now, 2016, Brexit happens, right? You have the Brexit vote, and the, the, the kind of classic explanation for that of the left and from Corbyn is that it's essentially an anti-austerity vote, right? It's a rebellion against austerity. It's the left behind kicking back against the public sector cuts and all of that kind of stuff. That's the, that's the way it's routinely understood. It's a kind of uh, a rebellion against neoliberalism. Um, but actually, if you look at it, the, 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 especially, certainly the elements of certainly the Labour leavers right, the people who were on the Labour Electoral Coalition who were most pro-Brexit, are essentially the same people who were the most um, essentially pro-austerity because they saw austerity as being a form of kind of national resilience, about standing alone, about uh, living within your means, about kind of, you know, uh, the World War II imagery, um, we're all in it together, that kind of thing. And uh, one of the most important things about the austerity narrative uh, was that um, the idea being once we've got rid of the scroungers, once we've got rid, once we've cut benefits, once the the, the, the benefit cheats are gone, once we've clamped down on immigrants who are just living off a life of luxury in their f free houses and all that kind of stuff, then we have a we have a program of national renewal and perhaps public spending can start again. That's the kind of um, kind of underlying premise of the austerity narrative, even if that might not have always been true. Um, and I think Brexit, the importance of Brexit, was that it kind of represented the moment of reckoning. If you think about the way the Leave campaign worked, it was 350 million for the NHS if we leave the EU, right? They, they, they brought the EU into the austerity populist narrative, and they said, if we leave the EU, then public, sec then, um, public, public spending can start again. The NHS, our NHS will get the money, we'll, get, we'll stop immigration, we'll leave the EU, we'll stop the, kind of, um, the forces that are kind of undermining the national, the national economy. Um, and then once Brexit had done, I think the austerity narrative was dead, because I think Brexit was, in a sense, the kind of culmination. And, and, and at that point, you couldn't, because we'd left the EU, the immigrants were going to go. Or the, the, you know, the scroungers weren't there anymore. We can have 350 million, or how much it was, a week for our NHS. Suddenly, that allay, and now allows um, a programme of public spending to come back onto the table again, as long as it's based on a kind of uh, nationalism, anti-EU, anti-free movement. And that was the crucial... Uh, moment that opened up the path for Corbyn in 2017, I think, and the crucial moment was that they abandoned free movement. By abandoning free movement, that was the last kind of obstacle to putting forward putting forward this program um, and not really opposing Brexit in that way. So you think in 2017 they managed to keep people with dropping free movement, but also they managed to keep a lot of. Remainers who were tactically voting in their favour because they thought Labour was the best route 
to freedom of movement, as it were. Well, yeah, that's where the moral image of Corbyn is so important, because people are like, well, Jeremy Corbyn isn't anti-migrant. He's never been anti-migrant, and he hasn't. He hasn't, right? But actually, when you look at the practical policies, the practical moment when you needed to oppose the ending of free movement, which was a legal right, right? That's the difference. It's not just a generous immigration policy that's kind of predicated on whatever government is in power at the time. It was a legal right. When push came to shove and they really needed to oppose that they didn't and people kind of vote for it anyway because they thought oh jeremy if he comes jeremy doesn't he, he loves you know he's very pro-immigration he kind of he, he wouldn't he wouldn't be that kind of leader but actually he was you know, when it came to immigration he had a much more right-wing policy than any other than certainly than ed Miliband did with his poor old mug that everyone hates so much the other element about austerity that we shouldn't forget is that I, I guess I didn't mention it when I was going through the component parts of Corbynism, but it's, it's the legacy of the anti-austerity social movements after the crisis. Their ultimate failure, I guess, you know, and their fragmentation, and the turn of a lot of the people involved in that towards a more electoralist parliamentary route, and you know, from the kind of horizontalist politics of, of pitching up a tent in a public space to actually trying to get into parliament, it's quite a, quite a sharp transition for the left. But with that, there is that, in the anti-austerity rhetoric of the time after the crisis, the anti-banker kind of, you know, I mean, at the time, perfectly justified critique of finance um, in causing the crisis, the, the structural similarity between that and on the opposing side of the aisle, the criticism of benefit scroungers and, and migrants, has a similar similarity in that it's about a critique of the unproductive on behalf of the productive national community, you know, something taking from something within and and in a way Corbynism was able to fill a space a gap left behind from the, the end of the austerity movement that, that that posed new kind of forms of that that appealed to both sides of that of that kind of divide to some extent so you know the the, the critique of the one percent on the behalf of the 99 percent or 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 the kind of or global capital on behalf of the of, of the nation or whatever so you know in a way we're still living in the kind of long legacy of that austerity moment but what characterizes johnson to some extent is a break with austerity and you know a kind of more interventionist and some labor politicians are still fighting the last war um you know bergen is talking about thatcherism and things like this is so wide of the mark to what they're up against and when you pose that kind of left populist um, uh, uh, messaging that you get you got from Corbyn against the right populist messaging of Johnson prepared to invest prepared to wield the state prepared to break with austerity and do all that it unlocks something libidinal or, or something like that, that that Corbyn just wasn't able to do when it came to the 2019 um, election and partly our book wasn't about saying that Corbyn or Corbynism posed this massive danger it was about the capacity of that political movement to withstand the pressures coming from national populism and ultimately its incapacity to do so because it didn't provide a robust enough alternative to the essence of what uh, that kind of right-wing national populism represented in that way. You are listening to Corbynism, the Postmortem, and this episode was kindly sponsored by the team over at Media Masters Podcast, who produce fascinating one-to-one interviews with some of the very biggest names in media. You can find them at mediamasters.fm. And now, back to the show. I'm going to do something that I haven't done in previous episodes of the podcast, is I'm going to talk about a bit about myself now and a bit about 
my perspective on, on Corbynism and things. But I'm going to start with a quote from your article, Taylor. Um, here we go. I think we all know what the problems are. For instance, I'm not what you'd call a hawk, but please, out there, in grainy, hard-bollocked reality, Corbyn's foreign policy would not just leave Britain naked in the conference chamber, but fastened into a gimp mask with a horse tail dangling out of its ass. Whether we like it or not, there is at least one confrontation coming. You can be sure of that. There are some nasty people in the world. You know, some of them, get this, are even nastier than Tony Blair. And even if you leave them all alone, they will not stop. Not for all the tea in Islington North. Now, I mean, you, you've written that in a very sort of humorous way, but... Well, I thought I'd written it in a humorous way. You'd be surprised the number of people who uh, responded by, he wants to bomb brown people. Yeah. Literally, word for word, yeah. I'll, I'll carry on. What's more, there are certain issues with Corbyn and the company he keeps. He doesn't just have skeletons in his closet. He hangs them up. <laughs> he hangs up his shirts in an ossuary. This is not a trivial matter. Those who underestimate the problems this will cause are fooling themselves, and in some case, losing sight of their own moral compass. Now, this was in 2015. The Skripal poisoning hadn't yet happened, but when you said, you know, we'd be left naked in the conference chamber, one of the most damning moments of, of the Corbyn project for me was when he was stood in Parliament, having already had the intelligence briefing, um, and, and he stood up opposite Theresa May, and he's asking whether we'd sent samples of the uh, nerve agent to Moscow to see mm. if it was theirs or not. And I, and it was beggar's belief. His entire backbench looked just forlorn, and yeah. between between forlorn and, and outraged. Um, but it, it goes beyond this because again, I'm now I'm going to talk about my own perspective in that before Jeremy Corbyn was even a candidate for the Labour leadership uh, contest, and and I was you know a very young reporter working on Syria and, and talking about Syria and talking about what the Assad regime was doing to Syrians, it became very, very, very clear. Like in Kosovo and in Bosnia, the only way that you could stop what was happening was by intervening to stop this this army. You know, the, the, the Syrian state was involved in a campaign of extermination against its own people using a modern air force backed by Russia. Um, the only way that this this bombardment this this bombing campaign could stop was with western military intervention at that point there became a massive split between you know people who had been initially supportive of the syrian revolution um suddenly had to ask themselves difficult questions about what it meant to be you know what it meant to support human rights and when supporting human rights might mean that you'd have to support bombing an airfield you know cratering a runway suddenly <laughs> Suddenly, the, the 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 situation and the rhetoric completely changed. Yeah. Suddenly, uh, people that that had been sharing articles about the horror of the Assad regime shooting, you know, men, women, and children in the streets, were now sharing platforms with George, the last bastion of Arab dignity, Galloway. You know, the entire rhetoric around Syria changed when Assad started using chemical weapons, and the West started seriously looking at each other and saying, "We might need to intervene." Um, and at the forefront of that in Britain, the number one guy pushing the idea that we should do nothing for Syria was Jeremy Corbyn at the head of Stop the War Coalition. I brought up that he'd, uh, he'd, he'd met pro-regime figures. He kept inviting pro-regime figures to give speeches, you know, in the, in the run-up to the Don't Bomb Syria campaign. 
the only people he was talking to were pro-regimers. There were there were no Syrian civil society activists everywhere. You know, the only positive story that he was ever talking about for Syria was was refugees. But beyond that, Syrians inside Syria didn't matter. Didn't matter what they what what suffering they were facing. And for me, that that I could never accept someone was on the right side of history for doing that because I, I again I remember as a school child I grew up in the in the Bosnia and Kosovo campaigns. Now, I had Kosovan and, and Bosnian children, refugees, turning up at my school. You know, I knew these kids. I knew what they'd come from. And, you know, even maybe I'm like 9, 10, 11 years old, I was proud of Britain intervening to save Kosovan lives as a child, you know, uh, who could barely formulate political opinions. Um, so to, to to reach adulthood and and see people not only that, stood on the wrong side of that war seeing these people now leading and driving the narrative of of the country's main opposition it was hugely concerning for me and trying to have that conversation with friends who were supporting the project was problematic you know again like you said people would say i want to bomb brown people i'm like no i'm what I really want is brown people to not be bombed. I want Syrian people to not be bombarded from the air every single day. And the only practical way of doing that is by deterring the Assad regime from bombing them. Okay? Now, there might be a number of options available, but sanctions alone aren't working. And if we don't do anything to stop it, you're going to get mass murder and you're going to get you know the entire country turned to rubble. And over the course of now nearly 10 years, that is exactly what has happened. So for me, yeah, sometimes sometimes the arguments about foreign policy they did they did get personal because they were very serious to me. They were they were life and death issues. Whereas for people who were talking about you know potential intervention and potential this and that, they were issues that didn't concern them. They didn't concern their families. They didn't concern people they knew. None of this stuff mattered. So I'm gonna go over to you, Taylor, and say, you know, you, you saw these foreign policy things, you saw the, the, the you know, skeletons in his closet, you, you saw him, you know, appearing on ir- Iranian state media, and so on and so forth. So, you know, what was, did you even see things going the way that this happened? I mean, it looked like you knew what was coming when you wrote that article. What, what's your take on the foreign policy side after four and a half years of Corbynism? Well, it was exactly what I predicted, and I was told I was uh, a fool for predicting. I mean, in fact, if I'd, uh, if I'd written in that article, oh, well, this is what's going to happen. You know, the shadow foreign secretary is going to stand up and par- uh, parrot the Assad line on what's happening in Syria. People would have told me I was insane. People would have told me I was a fool. I just wanted to interject there because it's probably helpful to to remind people. So so Shadow Foreign Secretary, as you said, Emily Thornberry, she did start saying things like we don't know who has the white hats and talking about, you know, prescribed terrorist groups providing open source data. I mean, all all of this was just nonsense ripped out of the the regime's narrative. Um, And for me, it never even seemed like Emily Thornberry was serious about this stuff. She was playing to a crowd, you know. I don't know whether I'm giving Emily Thornberry credit or patronising her by saying I think that came from above. Now, I will will say this as well, because it seems like maybe I'm giving undue credit and power to the left uh, when I talk about this. You know, the Conservatives are in power. 
at the end of the day, we come back to 2013 when the first vote happened and Stop the War Coalition were on marches and Ed Miliband, you know, pushed the Labour Party to vote against the motion to intervene in Syria and it all fell apart and Ed Miliband was very proud of himself. Yeah, we stopped the war in Syria, he said, on national television while hospitals were still being bombed on a daily basis. You know, the left were very self-congratulatory about stopping intervention, but they had nothing to say uh, about Syria at that point. But again, I'm not... It's not that the left or the Labour Party uh, were in control of Syria policy. But it is also fair to say that without the left having a position on this, it meant that no one in the country had a position on what should be done for Syria. In you know, not in the opposite, not in government, and not in the opposition. We were just left with basically no Syria policy whatsoever. So, what made you think this stuff was was going to happen? I mean, you know, people who were listening to this who might have been supportive of the Corbyn project, you know, when it started and and dismissed these ideas that these foreign policy things were bad. But one example I brought up before is Owen Jones, in hindsight, talked about uh, the Skripal poisoning and the reaction to it being quite bad. And But at the time, Owen Jones was defending Corbyn's reaction to it. So can you talk to me about well, the sort of how, how, how all of this played out? Well, first of all, I mean, God bless Owen Jones, but he is a modern journalist and he understands that he has to keep his social media uh, audience on side. Uh, I mean, we all saw what happened when he took two steps outside the uh, party line uh, re-anti-Semitism. Facebook and Twitter account bombarded with literally thousands of messages saying, who is paying you, Owen? Uh, Because he suggested that we shouldn't be beastly to the Jews. Um, So, yeah, I'm not sure you can take anything that he says seriously as uh, coming directly from the soul at this point, Uh, maybe once. Um, but in terms of, I mean, international politics is never calm, is it? I mean, we, we all knew what, more or less what Jeremy Corbyn thought, and we knew how he would react to things. And as I say, um, you know, if I'd written, Russia is going to poison someone in Britain, uh, British people will die, and Jeremy Corbyn will support Russia. What would people have said to me? They'd be like, how, how can you say this? It happened. Well, they'll, they'll still say he didn't. They say he was just giving them the benefit of the doubt, you know, yada, yeah. yada, yada. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, from your perspective, is that British people, even on the left, they love their country, they want to defend their country, they want to protect their country. And, and Corbyn's view of the world sort of never really seemed to be about that. Do you no, know what I mean? But also, um, I think a lot of people on the left see this as a time of crisis in this country, and we can just ignore that. It's interesting because when people uh, deny that Jeremy Corbyn thinks such and such or said such and such, they are at least demonstrating that they have a moral compass, even if their hero doesn't, because they're trying to distance themselves from supporting that kind of thing. Jeremy Corbyn always considered himself the foreign secretary of the left. Can you talk to me about Jeremy Corbyn's worldview and his foreign policy ideas and, and, you know, what sort of conclusions you come to in the book? All right, yes. Corbyn, uh, foreign secretary of the left, is his chief topic, isn't it? A lot of people, when, um, when the whole thing kicked off, I guess they felt maybe that they could get involved and get behind the domestic policy, you know, and set aside the, the foreign policy. Um, and to some extent that may be held for a couple of months but if you think about when momentum and everything really kind of kicked off and got quite 
visceral, it was around that uh, in the wake of the Bataclan attacks, the, the, the decision made to, or the vote on, on taking, well, it was, it was tactical air support to ground forces fighting ISIS, to, put, to give it its proper name. Um, who were large, largely the Kurds. The Kurds, exactly. Who, who the, retrospectively, the left has, has made a, uh, taken a much more accommodating stance to, uh, uh, you know, largely in the right. The, um, but at that point, you know, it unlocked something that wasn't there previously and really brought the whole thing together. And it's interesting how foreign policy had that ability to do that. I think by drawing upon that reservoir of feeling around the Iraq war, um, and and the identification of Corbyn with that as a pivotal moment in the in the last twenty years of, of British history. Um, now, I just, just on that same topic, the Liberal Democrats were also completely opposed to the Iraq War. So, why did Jeremy Corbyn get sort of credit for opposing the Iraq War in a way that the Liberal Democrats never really did? Well, I think, yeah, well. It's an interesting question why he got credit and other people didn't. I mean, I guess he's, he had a record of opposing every single intervention, which is always going to give you a good hit rate out of uh, out of ten. I mean, in in a large part, he's he's been as many times on the wrong side of history as on the right side, as we've already discussed. I think that you know the way that he talks about it, um, you know, being anti-war and in favour of peace. Works one way really because sometimes in order to secure peace, it's necessary to take action that is tantamount to war, um, and it allows a kind of solipsistic feeling that you know we're good, we're not at war. Uh, well, and we're seeing now the complete kind of uh, you know ignoring of an absolute catastrophe that's happening at the hands of the Syrian and Russian air forces in in Syria. Um, I think that you know to the extent that people thought it was possible to separate out the domestic policy from the foreign policy. I think Brexit, in a way, highlighted some of the contradictions in that for possibly some people involved in the movement, in that the way that Corbyn sees a conflict like the Syrian conflict, whereby what's important there is the sovereign, you know, the integrity of the of the sovereign state of Syria, and how he charts, sometimes rightly, and not in this case, but in others, a legalistic route through international rule of law, you know, need to go to the UN Security Council, everything needs to be sanctioned through that, in the full knowledge, basically, that the veto wielded by China and uh, Russia rules that out. I think that that kind of view of na- of sovereign nations and that sovereignty being an important principle worth, pre- worth preserving, which, you know, in some ca- in sometimes, of course, it is, but it shouldn't be the absolute rule that the left uses to understand the world. And you saw that also coming out with Brexit. What is that other than a, you know, a defence of the sovereignty of the nation? And a left-wing defence of sovereignty in these cases actually sometimes obstructs what should be left-wing objectives in the sense that there should be things like human rights prioritised above uh, national sovereignty. So that organising principle draws a commonality between domestic and foreign policy in a way that might not always be apparent to the uh, untrained eye. It's an interesting kind of pacifist, though, isn't it, who supports Hamas? and who bypasses the SDLP, who were in favour of reunification of Ireland by peaceful means, in order to hang out with Gerry Adams. It's a very strange pacifist. Yeah, I, I agree as well. I mean, also, like, we, we forget that there, there have been other incidents. Um, the, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, 
you know, originally Jeremy Corbyn said that that he blamed NATO for its course, belligerence yeah. for for the reason that Russia invaded Ukraine. And so. McDonald took a much different line on that conflict. So you know, I mean, we need to be careful not to lump everyone. Well, in. as he, as he is, often is, did, in fairness yeah, to McDonald, yeah, um, yeah. who quite often looked baffled and perplexed by his best friend's uh, strange... Uh, a, a couple of interesting incidents that I want to point out, which which comes back to my own reporting here, is that um, Andrew Fisher, senior policy advisor who helped draft the 2017 manifesto, um, he resigned and his letter was leaked to the press. Um, and in that letter, um, one of the one of the lines that he wrote in that letter said that uh, he had pushed for... Um, a tweet from Jeremy Corbyn to condemn the Russian and uh, Assad regime's bombardment of hospitals and that, you know, he didn't name any names, but I think we might all know who in the press office might have been responsible for that. Um, he said that, uh, that that was changed to condemn American actions in Syria and there was, you know, <laughs> That that was one of the things yeah. that he, he, he was saying was about a lack of humanity in the in, in the office. Now, this goes back to my own reporting, um, and I reported that Seamus Milne made some comments after he'd been hired as Jeremy Corbyn's uh, senior ad- advisor um, that he supported the Russian intervention in Syria. I had two witnesses that confirmed, who were part of the conversation, that Seamus Milne had said that the Russian intervention in Syria had improved the situation there. This was while, while they were bombing hospitals on a daily basis, and they're still bombing hospitals on a daily basis. So... The idea that this these kind of these policies now the Labour leadership's office responded to my article in which I made that factually true statement um, by denying it and saying Seamus had never made any such comments. They also found a um, I'd referenced uh, that Jeremy Corbyn had said he supported Russian peacekeepers in Syria in an in an interview he'd done with the Guardian. Now they in in a total moment of the thick of it. Like the Labour press office responded by what Jeremy meant to say is that he supported UN peacekeepers. He didn't. He said Russians peacekeepers specifically. You know, it was just a way of just retconning the history of what he said and the positions that that Milne had taken on Syria. It was all just you know up in the air and 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 revisable. What do you think about that? I'm interested in the kind of ideological, theoretical, and historical roots of this kind of perspective because in some ways I kind of I think there's a day I think a lot of people agree with Corbyn's worldview on foreign policy I really do um the, the idea that all terrorism is a kind of rational blowback to western intervention I think that's a, that's commonly shared not am- amongst the liberal left but also a lot of the right as well um this kind of you know the old-fashioned um realist approach to uh, international relations, where stability is the most important thing. That's a kind of old-fashioned paleoconservative perspective that was very prominent around the first George George Bush. And so I think a lot of people share it. But I'm interested in the roots of where, how, how Corbyn and Milne and these people, how they understand it, right? Because they don't think of themselves as being, you know, evil or kind of, uh, you know, uh, being in favour of oppression. They genuinely see themselves as being anti-hegemonic. They see themselves as being, as fighting oppression. And I think if you can trace the roots of where this kind of notion, this idea of imperialism and anti-imperialism, which is fundamental to the way that Corbyn and Milne and Murray and all the Stop the War lot um, understand the world, I think it reveals quite a lot about how um, these ideas developed. And also you can see some connections with broader conceptions of capitalism as a whole. 
So um, a lot of the way that they view imperialism, the notion of imperialism uh, derives, goes back to what Lenin was writing about imperialism in the First World War, and he describes imperialism as the highest stage of capitalism, where you have uh, the state and the kind of big monopolies in each state kind of almost unifying, coming together, and then working together to kind of uh, carve out territory and secure markets around the world, and you have this kind of imperialist standoff. What I find interesting is that Lenin's um, idea of imperialism, and Lenin criticised all imperialism, by the way, not just uh, the imperialism of his enemies. He, he, he criticised whether it was Russian or um, British or German or whatever. He had a kind of a, a, a total critique of imperialism. But his his notion of imperialism comes from a book, or some of it, aspects of his theory of imperialism comes from a book called Imperialism by J.A. Hobson. Now, you may remember that there was controversy about that particular book because Corbyn... Uh, a few years ago, wrote a kind of glowing introduction to this book about imperialism by Hobson. Um, and the problem is, is that Hobson was pretty anti-Semitic. And in fact, it, that particular book was one of his less lesser anti-Semitic works. His, his other works, uh, when he's talking about capitalism and the role of Jews and finance in particular, is far more anti-Semitic. Um, but he, he had a, Hobson had this idea of imperialism, uh, and one of the ideas was it that, that it was driven... Um, partly driven by uh, Jewish financiers who, uh, and he was looking at South Africa and the Boer War, I think, and he argued that Jewish financiers were driving this and the British were kind of in hock to uh, Jewish interests and imperialism was the result. Now, I think that's interesting because that shows actually that unwittingly, you know, unknowingly, there is a kind of form of anti-Semitism that's embedded uh, perhaps in the way that the concept of imperialism um, is developed within the left from the very beginning. I'm not saying that Lenin was anti-Semitic. I'm not saying it necessarily has to be anti-Semitic, but the potential is there from the beginning um, because it comes from Hobson. Interestingly, just another point, Hobson was uh, part of this movement called the New Liberals, a New Liberalism, um, who was very much import, uh, the idea of very important in developing ideas of the welfare state, uh, national, uh, the use of national sovereignty to protect the national people against global capital, and he's quite influential on Blue Labour. Actually, a lot of the Blue Labour lot really like Hobson, so there's an interesting connection. In fact, Blair used to talk about Hobson as well. So there's some interesting crossovers there. But so we have the idea of imperialism that's uh, developed by Lenin, um, and then that, and that's a total critique of imperialism. But then as um, time moves on, you, Stalin comes to power. Um, what happens is the world ends up being split into kind of two halves, you know, two categories. You have uh, the capitalist American camp on the one hand, you have the, the Soviet Bolshevik camp on the other. And uh, the concept of imperialism during that period is not no longer a total critique of imperialism in the sense of one country dominating another. Imperialism now is focused only from the perspective of the left and the Soviet left, focus only on the activities of America. America is the is imperialism now. Whatever America does, an imperial is imperialist. It, it's capitalists, um, and it should be opposed. Whereas whatever the Soviet Union does is inherently, objectively anti-imperialist. It's communist. It's objectively progressive. Right. That's the way that the kind of two campism, as it's called, uh, developed. Um, during much of the 20th century within the Soviet Union. Now, that worldview starts filtering into the British left via some of the British Communist parties who were getting their lines to take, if you like, from, from the Soviets. Um, but, then you, you, but then it also filters through to even to the anti-Stalinist left during the 1960s and 1970s. You get the development of what was known as the New Left, which is a bit of a vague 
category incorporates too many too many different groups but uh, the new left they kind of um, started focusing their attention not so much on the western proletariat if you like because the western proletariat would never there was no revolution coming they were very frustrating so they turned their attention onto the kind of national liberation movements in the third world anti-colonialist movements and you know rightly so in many cases but they kind of took the conceptual framework the rigid dualism the the Manichian worldview um, anti-imperialist imperialist objectively uh, anti-imperialist regardless of how imperialist or how uh, reactionary the Soviet Union or how impressive they might be they're, they're anti-imperialist and they, they impose that um, in the, onto the national liberation movements so you get a position where any national libera- liberation movement as long as it is seen to be objectively anti-imperialist i.e. Objective, objectively American should be supported because it's on the right side of history doesn't matter how reactionary they are doesn't matter how um, you know uh, misogynist misogynist authoritarian oppressive any of that doesn't matter as long as they're opposing the u.s as long as they're opposing u.s imperialism which is the only imperialism exists that's all that matters that is the that is the kind of worldview which then frames corbyn and that's why he's willing to support hamas he's willing to support hezbollah regardless of how oppressive they are internally it's why he you know objectively support assad doesn't matter whether assad's killing his own people because assad is seen to be opposing the u.s therefore he's objectively anti-imperialist therefore he's objectively progressive from this perspective you are listening to corbynism the post-mortem and this episode was kindly sponsored by the team over at media masters podcast who produce fascinating one-to-one interviews with some of the very biggest names in media you can find them at mediamasters.fm and now back to the show so obviously there's one uh, big elephant in the room that we haven't come across yet and that's uh, the corbyn project and its relation with the anti-semitism crisis on the left can you talk me through your your feelings on that please harry in the book, the, the, the way that we, we look at this is through relating anti-Semitism to, to two things, really. One is the kind of way that capitalism is critiqued on the left and some of the shortcomings of that. Um, and then the other is around anti-Zionism and, and Israel. I mean, on the, the anti-capitalism thing, sometimes you hear the claim made that there's an intrinsic or necessary relationship between being anti-capitalist and the anti-Semit- and anti-Semitism, so that anti-capitalism inevitably leads to anti-Semitism, and that's that's definitely not what we're arguing in the book. Rather, the, the uh, we're making a case for trying to rescue anti-capitalism from those who would conflate it with a, with a conspiratorial imaginary. That again, conspiracy theory doesn't need to inevitably lead to anti-Semitism. But, you know, in the age of the YouTube sidebar and that type of, you know, it's not technologically determined, but the the internet ferment around these type of things often does. So it's about what we're looking at is trying to argue for appreciating capitalism as a um, as a system of abstract forms of, of, of structures that are beyond individual agency, but they're the, they're the product of individual agency, but they dominate it from out. They dominate uh, individuals. That when you start to understand capitalism as a system of bad actors, you know where you're you're personalising those systems of power into individual hands, then that can create the environment that that gives favourable conditions for the for the for the kind of cultivation and spread of of 
anti-Semitic ways of, of viewing the world. Um, so I think you know that's one of the core components that somehow Corbynism, you know, unleashed something that was has always been embedded in left thought. You know, since you know before, uh, way before Marx, you know, who was addressing this as well. So it's not something new. Um, this way of, of understanding capitalism and its confluence with anti-Semitism, but you know, it, it's it, it's one of the explanatory factors about why this should be uh, happening at this time. Taylor, as I said, your article was one of the most prescient things I've I've read about the Corbyn project. After four and a half years, what do you think you got wrong? What do you think you got right? And how would you sum up, you know, what basically what we've seen happen over the last few years? Well, I think I lowballed it um, because I mean I was cynical at the time because I knew what Jeremy Corbyn was and what he was all about, but. To some extent, I was still making the same mistake of a lot of his supporters and thinking of him in terms of this guy that grows marrows while daydreaming about Durham Miners Gala. Um, What I sort of assumed was going to happen was that he was going to have to find some way of making peace with the PLP, that he was going to have to fit into it somehow. And I was thinking in terms of how is he going to fit Yvette Cooper into the shadow cabinet or whatever. No, of course, I should have known what was going to happen is what that part of the left has always done and has always wanted to do, which is to just get rid of all those people, fill the shadow cabinet with ancient allies and naive youngsters graded not on ideology but on their loyalty to the leader. Um, This obsession with party democracy, which means prioritising the wishes of the loudest and most extreme members over voters and constituents. and frankly, I just I didn't go far enough. If someone had said to me, this is where it's going to end up, with Jeremy Corbyn arguing the toss with the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, um, trying to change the definition of anti-Semitism in order to protect racist speech within the Labour Party, um, and that he would do this at high tide in a scandal over anti-Semitism caused entirely by his attempt to defend and protect outspoken anti-Semites in the Labour Party. I wouldn't have believed it myself. Um, What I did fear, um, and was right to fear, was what has happened, which is Jeremy Corbyn becoming synonymous with left-wing politics. uh, And an awful lot of people who seem to think that politics is on a single axis, and it's left, and there's right, here's Jeremy Corbyn. He's here on the left. You don't like him. Oh, yeah. You're to the right of me. And as anyone who's ever spent time around lefties will know, there's no worse sin than to be to the right of somebody, whoever that somebody is. And what's happened is, not only is it sort of degraded and oversimplified the, the discourse um, and meant that people have provided cover for an awful lot of really terrible ideas to come into the political mainstream... Um, But what that's done is have a terrible effect on the left, partly in practical terms because the left is now ballot box poison, and partly in moral terms because the very worst people on the left have gained prominence through him. And young activists who maybe were drawn to Labour or to the left for the most noble reasons are now inhaling those fumes. And we don't know what... These nuts that were never really anywhere near the Labour Party... That's, that they're creating the narrative now. I don't think that's a good thing. 
Um, and you argue in vain that, no, no, I'm of the left. I don't like Jeremy Corbyn, but he's left wing. Yes, but the problem isn't that he's left, just to drag this podcast down to my level, the problem was never that Jeremy Corbyn was left wing. The problem is that he's left wing and shit, which, aside from anything else, that does a terrible disservice to the left because being left wing and shit is actually worse than just being shit because it discredits and disempowers the, the left at a time when I would say the left is needed more than ever in this country. So, Harry and Matt, last questions for you both. What do you think you got right in the book? What do you think you got wrong? And obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's slightly out of date now. So, so what's your take on everything that happened afterwards and including, you know, kind of the reasons for the 2019 defeat in that? The scale of the 2019 defeat probably confounded our expectations a little bit, insofar as we were writing the book at a time where Theresa May was Tory leader and it wasn't that whole agenda wasn't quite gelling. Although, you know, we always acknowledged the possibility that put Corbyn up against a Johnsonite agenda and the whole thing had come crumbling apart. But I think the scale of the, the, of the defeat was, was, was wild um, to that extent. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, one other thing. I think towards the end of the last parliament where the Tories were really launching an assault really on rule of law and parliamentary process, you know, there was some acknowledgement then I think among the Labour leadership that it was necessary to work within these and defend these kind of forms of parliamentary mediation in a way we kind of attacked them for ignoring. But of course that's just his, you know, the circumstances that were dictating that. Um, you know, that was a a rare kind of little shining light, I think, within those last days of the, of the Parliament. But, um, I mean, in terms of what we got right, I do think we did. Argue, we do argue in the book that a lot of the ways in which Corbyn and Macdonald were kind of framing certain issues, like Brexit, that they were, you know, this idea from 2017 to 2018, there was a number of occasions where I think they could have really changed tack on Brexit. Um, particularly after the 2017 election, actually, when May's narrative had been completely discredited and they could have said, OK, let's have a rethink, right? They didn't. McDonnell went on Peston, I think, that week after and said, um, we've got to leave the single market. That's and People won't think it's real Brexit otherwise. Now, that really cemented it. And we did argue that... And, and then they kind of said that the EU was preventing British manufacturing from recovering. We weren't doing state aid. We needed to build it in Britain. They started this big campaign. Momentum were doing videos which said... Had these cackling Germans who were gloating at the fact that they'd been exploiting the British railways and everything. That kind of rhetoric, we argued feeds into the Brexit narrative, the nationalist narrative. It doesn't challenge it. And it just it needed to take a, a, a politician that had a bit of character, a personality, uh, willing to spend a bit of money with that nationalist narrative um, could, could benefit um, from the fact that they weren't being challenged from the left. And the left were in some ways kind of strengthening those arguments. And, and that has come to pass. That has actually happened. And, it left the, and it's left the left in a very difficult position. Because how do you how do you challenge Johnson at the moment? The things you've got to defend the the left have got to defend against Johnson are really unfashionable, right? It's judicial review. It's kind of really annoying lawyers doing stuff that to regular people reading it they think, what on earth is that about? That's ridiculous. But you've got to you got that's got to be defended. You've got you've got to defend the BBC after the left have been saying for years that it's actually full of you know um, capitalist propaganda or whatever. You know how do you and it's deeply unfashionable. 
And you've got to do a critique of Johnson's spending, which doesn't critique public spending in and of itself, but critique somehow the distribution of it or the way that, that, that it's not democratised. You know, it's extremely difficult. And, I, and so I think we did predict that that was a potential outcome. Um, what we got wrong, well, initially, when I was, I was writing around the same time as Taylor and I didn't think 2017 would happen. That was definitely something um, I got fundamentally wrong. So, final question. Do you think there's anything we should be looking, you know, hopeful towards, Harry? Yeah, well, the way this thing is going to shake out, I mean, you've got three candidates for the leadership right now that are, you know, would mark a, would be a, a vast improvement, you know. But um, the, the condition of whether or not they can succeed is how much they're prepared to, you know, to, to be to reflect and to critique and to do away with aspects of, of the kind of baggage they're inheriting in the in the party and try to separate out what is good of that from what is bad. Um, you know, there's some candidates in that respect are, are, are much better than others, but, you know, I, this, I hold out some hope for all, for all three of their capacity to do that. Taylor? Yeah, from... From my extensive experience of sitting in my flat looking at social media and reading the internet, um, it seems to me that the Corbynites have now been split by the the leadership election um, into the group who were essentially well-meaning and went with Jeremy Corbyn because he seemed nice and because he was the only one, you know, pushing an anti-austerity narrative and who seemed to be of the left, um, and the the nuts and all of the nuts want Rebecca Long-Bailey to be the next leader of the Labour Party. And all of the other lot want Keir Starmer to be the next leader of the Labour Party. So I'm just going to throw in my lot with Keir Starmer and keep my fingers crossed. I would say there is probably a third lot. Not just obviously Lisa Nandy, but also there's, there seems to be like another lot um, who have rejected Rebecca Long-Bailey. I mean, she was defending cannabis being illegal on television the other day. Uh, she was defending the royal family. She described herself as a Zionist at the Jewish Labour Movement conference. So, you know, even even within that sort of, you know, crank alliance that Jeremy Corbyn had managed to keep together by, you know, keeping Chris Williamson inside the party and so on, that seems to have fragmented a bit now for, for that. We said that once you take Corbyn out of the equation, things become much more difficult because you know he was he was adept at or his figure, his persona was adept at holding those things together. But this fragmentation you're seeing now, you know, I, I, I but but it's it's good because it shakes up the pieces and the way they fall. Obviously, some work needs to be done, but it could come out looking pretty good. But there's a whole lot of work to do to overcome these kind of these more structural elements around anti-Semitism and things like that that aren't going to just be wiped away as if with a sponge. Thank you so much for joining us, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Corbynism The Postmortem. And I'd like to give a huge thanks to our guests, Harry Pitts, Matt Bolton and Taylor Parks. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider supporting us by subscribing to my Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash ozcategy. This episode was kindly sponsored by the wonderful Media Masters podcast, hosted by Paul Blanchard. The show is a series of one-to-one interviews with the very biggest media names, and you can find out more at mediamasters.fm. Thanks for tuning in.